Welcome to the Ask the Experts podcast. Here's Karen Bhatia. I am Karen Bhatia. This is Ask the Experts. Thank you so much for joining me. Happy New Year to everyone listening. So we're going to look back at some great fights that just happened uh, towards the end of December. And we're going to look forward to a big card happening this week. So first, we're going to look back at Jermel Charlo's performance against Tony Harrison. It was a grudge match, and Jermel was able to get the knockout in a fascinating fight of the year candidate. And I will be speaking to Jermel Charlo's trainer, Derek James. Derek also trains Errol Spence Jr. And now we're looking ahead at this decade. Errol Spence was supposed to be one of the top fighters in this decade, but he had the unfortunate car accident. He's back in the gym. He said he's going to make a comeback this year in spring or summer. And I'm going to talk to Derek James about exactly how Errol Spence is doing. He's one of the few people on planet Earth who is seeing Errol Spence in the gym, seeing him working. And we're going to get an update from Derek James on what is the situation with Errol Spence. And will Errol Spence fight Terrence Crawford next? That's the fight we all want to see. I asked Derek James that, and you're going to get an exact answer on that question. Then after that, we spoke about Jermel Charlo and Tony Harrison. Well, guess who was the referee for that? That was Jack Reese. He's one of the best referees in the game right now. And I will be speaking to him. Not only did he ref Jermel Charlo versus Tony Harrison, which uh, required him to step in and call the fight at the end, um, but he also refed Tank Davis versus Yuri Orcus Gamboa, which also just took place, which also ended in a late uh, knockout stoppage that he had to get involved in. But Gamboa complained about a shoe malfunction after he got knocked down. He got knocked down in the second round, and then he's complaining about a shoe situation, and Jack Reese had to step in, make a quick determination on his feet, figure out what's going on, and he did that. And he's going to explain his thought process. He's going to take us through that moment, and he's going to take us through the Jermel Charlo-Tony Harrison fight. Uh, He's going to take us through the Tank Davis versus Gamboa fight, and we're going to look back at his decade and some of the biggest moments uh, and things that he's been involved in. Of course, Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder uh, was one of the biggest fights uh, that he's been involved in. And I mentioned we would look back and then look ahead. So on Friday, January 10th, we have a stacked card from Atlantic City. It's airing on Showtime, and I'm going to be talking to many fighters from that card. First up, Alicia Napoleon Espinoza. She is making her name in women's boxing. She's a champion in the super middleweight division. And her fight is actually a unification fight in that division. It's very rare in women's boxing to get that big unification fight. It's happening. And I'm going to speak to Alicia Napoleon Espinoza. And I'm going to speak to her opponent, Ellen Sederus from Sweden. She's undefeated. So that's going to be a tough test for Alicia. Now, if Alicia can get past Ellen Sederus, she will take on Clarissa Shields, who's also on that card and that brings me to my next guest it's the opponent of Clarissa Shields and it's Ivana Habazin so if you remember there's a lot of bad blood between Ivana Habazin and Clarissa Shields and it all goes back to this is the third time this fight has been scheduled first time Clarissa was injured the second time they were set and ready to fight in Flint Michigan and at the weigh-in Shields uh, brother or someone from the entourage punched the trainer of Habazin. That was 70-plus-year-old James Ali Bashir, and he was rushed to the hospital. James Ali Bashir will not be working with Ivana Habazin for this fight, and I actually asked her about his condition, how he's doing, and how that's going to affect her in this big fight against Clarissa Shields. 
And then my last guest is also fighting on that card. He is the Phenom from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He's 22 years old. He's undefeated, 24 and 0. 22 of those by knockout. And that is Jerron Boots Ennis. If you haven't heard his name yet in the welterweight division, you will hear it soon. He's going to have his opportunity to make a big splash on a national TV stage. So we're going to talk to him about that and who he wants next. What are his goals and aspirations in this sport? We are starting off the decade with a packed podcast. So let's get right into it. Derek James. He's the trainer for Jermel Charlo, who just had a fight of the year candidate win over Tony Harrison. And he is the trainer for Errol Spence Jr., one of the pound-for-pound top best fighters, one of the the best young fighters who was seemingly uh, had the world at his feet, and he just had the unfortunate car accident. We don't know his status, and that is something that Derek James is going to be able to uh, update us, and he's going to tell us who Spence wants to fight next, and he's going to tell us if Spence will fight Terrence Crawford. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Derek James. I am Karan Bhatia, and let's ask the experts. I am Karan Bhatia, lucky enough to be speaking with trainer of Jermel Charlo, of Errol Spence, Derek James. Derek, thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak with me. And of course, congratulations are in order on Jermel's big win. And also, we saw on the broadcast that Errol Spence uh, says he's going to be back in spring and summer. So for you, it's it's a lot of good things going on right now, right? <laughs> well, I think, I think that uh, it is a lot of good things going on. It's been like that for a pretty good while. Well, you know, the guys have been pretty, doing pretty well, you know, now with Jamel getting the world title back and Errol, you know, finding the belt last year. No, that's good. And, and we saw Errol on the broadcast. It's the first time he's been seen in public. Um, and he, he looked well. He was, he was speaking well. Um, Brian, Kenner, Brian Kenny interviewed him. So, so Errol said that he looks to be back in spring and summer. Is that, is that the plan? Is he in the gym training, getting ready for a comeback? Oh, yes, he's training. But I, don't, I don't know the dates or anything like that. My job is just to sit him ready. And yep. then, uh, you know, if he's talked to a man, if he's talked to Al, and, you know, he may have told him something, but I'm just considering getting ready. So they'll tell me a day, but right now, I'm just preparing, just focusing on everything, you know, everything, reaction time, all these things, getting back, getting back to, to where he was before. And, of course, I want to get into the Jermel Charlo fight, but last question on Errol. He said that he's ready to come back for, for a top opponent. He doesn't want an easy opponent. Do you agree with that that strategy? You guys are, are ready to get right back into it with a top top fighter? I think that, well, I mean, we'll know over time within the training camp, but I believe that I want everything he wants. So I believe that he's ready. I mean, you know, I think that, you know, because we'll see. Once we get everything rolling, but from my perspective right now, and look at him, he's, he's ready now, but we'll see. We saw some more contact, more sparring, and things like that. But he says what he wants, and I'm with him. So, you know, my job is to make sure get him ready and get him prepared for the fight. Well, I think bottom line, us as spectators of the sport, as fans of the sport, we're just happy to to know that he's healthy, that he's going to be back. I think that's extremely exciting. So let's talk about Jermel Charlo versus Tony Harrison, too. It was the rematch. Um, obviously, Jermel waited a full year 
to get that crack at, at uh, Tony Harrison. So there was a lot of bad blood, obviously, between between the teams. How how important was it for you as your job to tell Jermel, hey, let's let's focus on fighting, let's focus on boxing, and not the outside of the ring type of stuff, the the back and forth that 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 came together with the bad blood. Well, it was it, that, that gets fair, you know, it was more bad blood between the fighters, not the teams as a whole. But I mean, like we couldn't be what we were and be able to demand the type of money and do the things we do. Still, we're not for fighters like Tony Harrison and vice versa. So, my perspective is the reality of it: we needed each other. So, I'm, I'm not gonna be mad at the guy that we work together. And uh, but this is something that was kind of personal between them. And you know, it was. It, and what's funny about it is that. You see, the, it was three phases to me during the fight. I mean, um, the male going out, and when he caught him, and we tried to get him out of there, then we had to come back and kind of like uh, get everything together and recoup and then go go and use boxing technique to get him through those middle rounds at the end to, to knock him out. So in the, the knockout, you heard it, it was everything was pinpoint accurate. Opposed to when initially, first when they heard him, he kind of went out and tried to get him out of here. But this time, everything was on point. So it's like, you see the growth of the fighter within that fight. But you see him hurt a guy and kind of go all out. But then you see him, okay. But then in the middle rounds, he had to box. He had to box and kind of gather himself. Then towards the end of the round, when he caught him, you see him pinpoint and be accurate on every point of shot. But before, if you notice, he was just throwing wild shots when he heard him. So, or shots to try to get him out of This time, everything was right on point from the three uppercuts in a row to the one-two down the middle. It was amazing. And, and that's actually exactly what I wanted to ask you. So, obviously, Jermel wanted this rematch because he lost his title last December. He had to take on Jorge Cota in June um, because Tony Harrison had the ankle injury. So, they get in the ring finally. We've been waiting for this for so long. And I, I was going to ask you that now. Jermel did look like, at least in the first round, that he was going for the home run punch. He had the wide looping shots, and he looked like he really wanted to knock this guy out and make a statement. Did you tell him anything after the first round? Did you say, hey, calm down a little bit? And and, and you know maybe stop going for the home run punch um, and because this is a twelve round fight. Yeah, I just tell him I'm so like to, I still want the, the level of aggressiveness and the, the amount of right. punches, but I want it to be don't don't be so wide, don't be so wild. And it's not about the one shot; it's about setting up other punches. You got to set it up, and like as you see in the later rounds, we got away from the one big punch and just sort of basically winning the fight with punches. And how you open them up and get to land that shot you want. Because if a guy knows that you're trying to land a big shot every time, he's going to brace up, he's going to kind of tighten his body up or whatever the case may be to kind of like be prepared for the big shot. But when you start landing multiple shots from multiple angles, that's when those, those shots get to open up and you land the shot. Absolutely, and Jermel was able to execute on the game plan as early as the second round. He landed the left hook, down went Harrison. Now, Harrison popped right back up. So what, what did you learn from that, that second round knockdown? Did you, obviously, he wasn't necessarily hurt because he popped up, but uh, that meant that the game plan that you had, that you had implemented was working, right? Yeah, but, but what, you, what you learn about the fight is that you see Harrison, and you see like he showed something in himself in this fight, that I believe he had in so many other fights. He showed his fortitude, his yep. toughness. He showed his, even he had a good inside game. So, I mean, 
he showed all the aspects of his game that we had never seen before or that he had never shown before. So I think that for him, I mean, it was really good. It was like it was a good fight because he, he pushed Jamel on the inside. He pushed, he, I mean, they fought a good fight. I mean, both both guys fought a pretty good fight. I think that for, for Jamel, boxing in the middle rounds kind of got him to relax a little bit and kind of opened him up for the, 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 the hook again, you know, the shots again. So I think that. But it was like once he settled down, he started picking the shots and basically winning the round and keeping the punch count up. That's when he was winning the big shots. And the punches throughout the fight were very close. Every round was within a punch of each other. Um, by the end of the 10th round, the punch count was 113 to 112. So it was basically even in terms of punches landed, tracked by Copybox. Before we get to the end of the fight, I, I wanted to ask you, there was moments in the fight where Jermel would land a combination, Tony would kind of block uh, some of it, and then Tony would start showboating. What, what was your reaction to seeing Tony kind of dancing around showboating? What, what did you think about that? I think mean, it was just like, I think that that's the showmanship with Venom that we've never seen before. But I think that, that I think he said that he got hurt with a body shot. And then he started to do that to kind of get him a little, if I'm not, if I'm, I don't want to misquote him. I think in the press conference, he mentioned something about some shots. They got hit with a body shot. They got hit with the hurt. And he kind of like, uh, you know, shook it off. But I think that, that showed a little bit inside of showmanship. I mean, he grew up in this fight. I mean, you think about this. We trained for him for three times, three training camps for Tony Hans. Right. Yeah, I like I like the guy, but not that much. I mean, <laughs> right. <laughs> to, to train for him three times, I'm like, I'm tired of training with Tony Hans. The last camp, I did not watch one video. Because I had and watched it for, for months and months. So I, I had everything memorized from what strategically, his movements. His reactions, I mean, I was like, I'm not watching this fight. So I did not watch one, not one time. And, of course, you, you trained for him last December for the first fight, and then you guys thought you would have him again in summer. He was injured, and then that was the second time, and then now, obviously, uh, last weekend, the third time. So the 11th round comes. Jermel executes on the game plan. He's able to land the big left hook. Down goes Harrison. And did you know at this point that, that, that Jermel had, had found whatever he needed to find and the, the fight was about to be over? I thought that, you know, when, when, when I just told him, I said, I want, you to be more, I want you to be busy. I want you to shoot the hook after the jab because the shot is open. The shot is open, the shot is open. So what I did was, I mean, he was working the jab because the jab started to land. If you think about this, in the first fight, the, the punch that Harrison really only landed was the jab, which, and, and, you know, a concession. But this fight, Jamel was, his jab was more dominant. And so I said, keep playing the jab and shoot the hook after the jab. Maybe they could shoot that shot after the jab, man. And that, that wobbled him. And then it was kind of like, but when the second knockdown in the 11th round, I thought the fight was over. But it wasn't. I was like, man, I thought it was over. And they let him go a little bit longer. So I was like, man. And, and that's what I wanted to ask you. So in terms of the jab, it was it was Harrison's long jab versus uh, Charlo had the lightning quick jab. And sometimes it would actually be a hook, which was which was caught uh, Harrison off guard. Now, the first knockdown, like you mentioned, the second one, it seemed like Jack Reese was about to call the fight, but he gave Harrison a chance to get up. So in your mind, you felt like the, the fight should have been stopped right there. The second knockdown in the 11th round, right? 
I really kind of did, but I mean, like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm just a trainer. We all want the fight to be stopped, you know what I mean? <laughs> and for for our guy, but Jack Reese, I guess he felt like, you know, he gave the champ the benefit of the doubt, and uh, and, he, and he did. But I mean, I think that from my perspective, I would have thought it would have been stopped because of the punches were landing so fresh, so clean. That's like four punches in a row. Really, it was like five. But he was the first hook. It was the three uppercuts. Then he missed with the, he hit him in the chest with the left hand and the right hand and the right hand. I'm not thinking that was just enough for me to see. Because I know and, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a guy that reason in. Don't want to see so much about this, you know, too many punches to the head. So. No, fighter safety is paramount. I've been speaking a lot about it, and I'd much rather see a fight uh, end early than a fight end late. But I know that Jack Reese has said in the past, if it's a champion, he wants to give him the benefit of the doubt. Either way, uh, you know, Charlo did his thing. He's swarming Harrison on the ropes. Harrison's defending, but he's not throwing, and the fight is called. So at that moment, when the, when the fight is finally over, you, you guys had been spent a year training for this guy, like you said, three times. What, what was was it a sigh of relief? Were you happy to finally get that win over Tony Harrison? For me, it's all about relief. I'm mean, having that. It brings joy, so I'm happy. But at the same time, I feel a sense of accomplishment. I think that last year, I was very upset. I mean, I, I felt like I let him down in some sense. And then I feel like, you know... I should have, you know, uh, you know, we 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 fell short last year. So this year is so much about accomplishments. So I'm not so much about on party, on celebrate. I just feel like I did my job, and it was like that chapter is probably over. So for myself, you know, so I think it's good. And, and that was my next question. Is that chapter finally closed? Obviously, after the fight, Tony Harrison was respectful in losing. He said that it was a good stoppage, but he did, of course, call for the trilogy, which you could understand of a man in his position who just lost the title. But do you guys want the trilogy fight with, with Tony Harrison, or, or are you looking to other opponents next? I mean, for me, I'm not looking to anybody. I mean, I'm, I'm looking for what makes sense for Jamel. Jamel wants that fight if he wants to fight with uh, Julian Williams if he wants. Whoever I'm, in, so, so, I'm not. I'm not a. Uh, I'm not the picky guy. I'm the guy that gets them ready. I mean, I'm not uh, so much into that. I, I just do my best to get them prepared. Do my best to get them ready. That's it. And well, for us as fans, you know, we we followed you and your career in the last decade. We're coming to the end of the decade here. When you look back at all the great work. Uh, that you've done with Errol Spence, with Jermel Charlo, and others. It, it, has it been a good decade for you in terms of, of boxing? We've seen it as an observer. I'm sure you're, you're looking back and enjoying uh, what you've done in the past decade, right? You know, I've had a good, I've had a good run. I mean, my, in my situation has been going for like 10 years with Errol, you know, and um, it's been going great. You know, um, I don't know about, it's been good. I mean, I got the ring making training here, y'all, sports training of the year. I mean, I would have thought that for some strange reason, I have one guy that fought a, a Hall of Fame, Mikey Gessinger, and beat yep. him out. Then next fight, he fights a unification bout, and he beats Sean Porter, which, you know, wins another title. Then my guy comes back and wins his title from Betty Lost last year. I would have thought that that would have probably made me win train out of the I'm just <laughs> saying. So, I mean, because you think about this, who they say, okay, Canelo, that's one guy for so you saying what one guy did is more important than what two guys did. So I won two new titles this year. 
<laughs> That's all I'm saying. So, you know, look, I am very happy and very appreciative. I'm more focused, more more dedicated than ever. But I'm just saying at the same time, I don't get the justification. I don't get it. I mean, so I'm not saying if I want or not, because I'm sure I'm not even in it because they have, I have not heard anything. But at the same time, like, come on, man, you know, you got a guy who lost the title, gets the title back. You got a guy who fired the title and went. He's a four-time champ. A four-time champ. The thing about this, there have only been two super fights in boxing. Right. In the past, and that was the my, my Elfman versus Mike Garcia, and recently, and Elfman versus Sean Porter. Remember right. Two fights and right hand fight, the Grand Hagler. Those are super fights. Right. So the fights that Canelo have not even super fights. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, the, the Smith Garcia fight was a super fight. Forty thousand. Right. right. He fights Sean Porter. Twenty thousand. Super fight. No, these these are massive accomplishments because so when when Errol uh, got the matchup with Mikey, that was billed as a fifty fifty fight, and Errol completely dominated every second of that fight. Then he takes on Spence. Uh, then he takes on Porter, who's a beast, and Porter's in his face. And Errol needed to get a knockdown, make a statement, and he did that in the eleventh round. He wins that fight. And then if you look at Jermel Charlo, he knocks out Coda in the third round, erases him, and then avenges his loss. So. That's one hell of a year. <laughs> you think, you know, you just said something about you think about them. 11th round is my round, man. Think about this. Kel Brook, 11th round. <laughs> yup. That is, that is the round. That is the round. Tony Harrison in the 11th round. Spence knocked down Porter in the 11th round. That's the round that you that you motivate your fighters to, to give it their all. And they, they seem to do that. So... Uh, before I let you go, it has been a wonderful year now. Like, uh, like we talked about in the beginning, we know Errol Spence is coming back. We're all looking forward to that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you the question just because I have to ask it. Are we going to see, do you think in 2020 is the year that we could finally see uh, the unification fight between Errol Spence and Terrence Crawford? I don't think so. I'm, I think that, I think that like, like, like you said, think about this. Errol has to fight. Maybe Pacquiao or maybe uh, Danny Garcia. These are other top guys who are over here. And it's only makes sense. I mean, then then he'll fight him after that. Only because you have things in front of you. People have goals. People have and Errol Spence's goals at this point, or you know, or or Al Heyman goals, or to you know keep his guys busy and they have guys that are fighting. So there's nothing. I mean. That fight will happen, I believe so. But it's just, I mean, things that are happening right now. I mean, they're right in front of them. You know, it's easier for Errol Spence right now in terms of the PBC family to fight a Danny Garcia, to fight a Manny Pacquiao. Obviously, the Manny Pacquiao fight would be a huge fight. It's Crawford seems pretty content in his side of the street fighting the mandatories that he's fighting. So... Let's say that then maybe if Spence is able to get past his guys, Crawford's able to get past his, maybe at least in 2021, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, without, listen, man, without a doubt. About this. It's, not, it's not like, put it like this. It's, this is what like, we understand. Look, if you look at Deontay Wilder, right? Right. So what did Deontay Wilder? He fought the two guys, two or three guys that were here that he had to fight. Right. That were in front of him. Then what he do? Right. He went to go fight. Uh, he's fighting uh, 
The reason I said Tyson Fury, so it's not like, so it's not like it's not happening. It's not. It's just the reality that this is what it is, man. These, this he fought Ortiz was right in front of him. They fought who did he fight before that? He fought Stavern. He fought uh, Chris Ariola. He fought Arthur Spilka. Right. He fought. He fought a lot of guys in the the PBC, Fox, and Showtime family first oh, before right. fighting so Fury. That's right. So so now that he's handled those guys. Man, it's time for him to fight that guy, right? It's okay. So I, mean, I think that there may be a probability for L at the same time. They talked about it. He fight these guys, and then so he wants to be down the street the champ. All we can do is he gets all the belts over here. W, one more belt. He's going to have the WBA to get, and then Crawford has the WBO. And and let's hope that, that that unification does come together. And let's hope that the fact that Wilder and Fury are coming together, that makes it easier in terms of the networks working together. Let, let me ask you this just to close it out. You're obviously working with Errol on a day-to-day basis. You're seeing him uh, in a way that the rest of us are not. Is he the same fighter as he was before the, the car accident? Yes, he is. That's, that's what I, I gauge him. I grade him. My deal is not, this is my thing. I don't care about him boxing again until he's ready to box again. You see what I'm saying? So my deal is not so much about him fighting. You're going to have to be able to check his mental reaction time. He's doing everything. He's seeing everything. How he's moving. That's what I'm looking at every day, every time. Every day. I'm looking for consistency. I'm looking for I do certain things. To see if he's going to react to it, he's going to react to this, he's going to react to that. I do it all the time. That's what, that's what my job is. So I'm not only training him, I'm grading him at the same time. I care about his person. I care about everything, him coming back being great. If he's going to come back, I care about him to come back being great. So I have to work on all the things that I did to enhance all those um, attributes that he had before. So not so much about me, about him fighting. I care that he gets ready fighting mentally, spiritually. All the other things need to be empathically prepared. So that's, the key. that's my key job. It's my key element. I'm watching him, I'm grading him. Every day I have to be I have to be um there. I have to be focused, I have to be awakened so I can watch and see everything he's doing, all of his reactions before we get in the ring. Right, and you're you're grading him. He was an A plus he was an A plus before. He's an he's an A plus now after the car accident, he's still an A plus. Well, you know, he is. I mean he's just, just gotta get his condition back up. Yeah, he's he's everything it isn't. Everything is good. And the more and more we work, the more and more I can see more. My expectations grow at certain levels, at certain aspects of conditioning. So it grows and grows and grows. So I'll see and I'll be able to grade him. I'll be able to see how his reactions react to that. So at that point, after that, I mean, I mean you know, if, like this, when the world sees him, he's going to be 100%. So when it's fight time, you're going to see him 100% that it's like, you don't go, you don't, cannot. My thing is not to grade him for more he was before. That's how everybody else is grading him. My thing is to grade him from what it took to get to that point and to look at it and see his reaction, his reaction, that. So he's doing everything I need him to do at this point. Well, that's great to hear for us as boxing fans. We, we look forward to his comeback. Derek James, you had a fantastic 2019. I know you're going to have a fantastic 2020. And I want to thank you so much uh, for the time, for breaking down Jermel's loss, for updating us on Errol Spence's condition. And happy holidays, happy new year. And, and thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time to speak with me. 
Thank you very much. You have a beautiful day, man. Enjoy. That was Derek James, trainer for Jermel Charlo, Errol Spence. And what did we learn there about Errol Spence? Errol Spence wants to come back in spring or summer. And according to Derek James, he wants Pacquiao or Danny Garcia. We know Danny Garcia is taking on Ivan Redcatch in January uh, later this month. Now, he was supposed to take on Spence. As we know, Spence had the car accident. We didn't know what his condition was. But according to Derek James, he's going to be 100% when the world sees him. So that makes me think he may not be 100% right now, but he will be 100% by the time it comes to fight. We saw Errol Spence on the broadcast uh, talking to Brian Kenny. He looked a little different. He looked like he had put on weight, which makes sense. Um, he actually sounded a little different. So the question is, what is he going to be like when he gets back in the ring? And it would seem like conventional wisdom is take a tune-up fight, right? Like get get an easier opponent. You just went through a life-threatening car accident. But Spence wants to get back in there with the top opponents. One opponent that him or his trainer are both not calling out next is Terrence Crawford. Terrence and Errol Spence, they went back and forth on Twitter recently. We all want to see that fight. And, you know, I really hope that the fact that Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder are coming together at the end of February for their fight, uh, that is top-ranked ESPN with Fury, uh, Fox and PBC with Wilder. They're coming together. They're getting past the, uh, you know, the differences in promoters and networks. And because that's happening, maybe that could be a template or a blueprint to allow for uh, Errol Spence and Terrence Crawford to fight. We all want to see that mega fight uh, in the welterweight division. And I think we all hope that Errol Spence, Errol Spence is the same uh, fighter he was before the unfortunate car accident. So we talked about Jermel Charlo versus Tony Harrison. It was a fight of the year candidate. And the referee of that fight was Jack Reese. Now, he not only ref that great fight, but a week later, he refed Tank Davis versus Yuri Orkis Gamboa, another excellent fight. Both of these fights ended in TKO stoppages, which means that Jack Reese had to insert himself into the fight and call them off. And he did so, in my opinion, at the correct times. But we're going to ask him about that because whenever there are multiple knockdowns in a fight, everyone is going to have an opinion and say, you should have stopped it here, you should have stopped it there and we're going to talk about how difficult that is for a referee to make those decisions uh, on the fly. You have the world watching and you have to decide on the moment not only uh, for what's right for the fight but also for these fighters' safety. So we're going to look back at Jermel Charlo versus Tony Harrison. We're going to look back at uh, Tank Davis versus Yuri Arcus Gamboa. We're going to talk to Jack Reese about all the decision making that went in there. Plus the biggest storyline of all maybe was Yuri Arcus Gamboa started to complain about a shoe malfunction after getting knocked down in the second round and jack reese had to kind of decide hey is this for real is this guy trying to buy time so i I spoke to him about that so without further ado here is my conversation with referee jack reese i am karen batia this is ask the experts speaking with veteran referee jack reese you've been seeing his face everywhere it seems like in terms of big fights so jack i'm sure you're always busy uh, with with big primetime fights, but it just so happened that the last two weeks, December 21st and December 28th, you were refereeing big main event fights um, that ended in stoppages. And um, so I guess my first question is, is how are you feeling after after the back-to-back weeks? Oh, it's great. I'm so fortunate to be able to do that stuff and people are calling upon me to do these fights. I'm blessed. 
And you had some high-profile matchups, um, and they actually both ended in stoppages. So, so we'll get into those. So let's let's start with Charlo Harrison, the rematch. Um, it was on December 21st. And my first question is, how do you deal with two guys who really don't like each other? There was a lot of smack talk uh, before the fight, and these guys are not friendly in any way. So does that change your job at all as a referee? It just makes it more difficult, and you got to um, anticipate what could possibly happen. And, you know, I'm blessed to have what I feel is the best commission in the entire world right now. And everybody was aware of the high tension between these guys. And I'm going to tell you a backstory that I don't think the fans know. The promoters were so worried that these two guys would have an incident prior to the fight, they hired a backup fighter, paid him to stand by and be ready to fight in case one of them hurt the other one at a press conference or to weigh in. Wow, that's that's really interesting. So you're saying Jermel Charlo and Tony Harrison didn't like each other so much that the promoter had someone standing by to step in in case there was a brawl or an injury or something like that? Absolutely. A professional fighter who wow. now has another fight coming up yeah. was the standby fighter in case one of them hurt the other in an altercation before they got in the ring. That's really interesting. Now, I'm guessing I'm going to have to ask, but I'm guessing you can't tell us who it was, the backup fighter. I, I don't want to because I don't want to put myself in a position in case they wouldn't have wanted me to, to tell you. Sure, sure. But wow, that, that's really interesting. I, I, I actually, that's the first time I'm hearing about that, but that does seem smart. Based on the bad blood, there was there was bad blood because these guys fought a year ago. Um, afterwards, uh, Harrison and went over to congratulate Jermel. Jermel said that Harrison uh, said that everyone knew he won, and that started started this whole thing. So these guys didn't like each other. It made your your job uh, <clears throat> more difficult. So the fight starts, and uh, you know it was so it was can an interesting. We go back. And I'll yeah, please. But what he said. Yeah. So how it changes for me is I've got to do a little bit more legwork. Yeah, the front end to, to try to prevent this stuff. My commission was aware of what was going on, obviously, and we put some of the strongest inspectors we have in both corners so a melee wouldn't start in the ring. They would be able to stop anybody from the corners from jumping in the ring and be able to control the fighters if it came down to that. And my commission also let them know that we're not going to allow that kind of stuff to happen in, in California you're going to be looking at heavy fines and suspensions and all that stuff. And with me on the front end, what I did was I went to both of them and I appealed to them uh, in a respectful manner. Look, you sold the fight. I know you don't like each other, but in the reality is I told them both, you're both very clean, high level, talented fighters. Don't mar this up with some kind of incident. Go in there and fight the way you know how without doing anything illegal because if you do, you're forcing my hand to, to do something that could cost you money, could cause you suspension, cost you time off from the sport. I said, so let's just put all that behind us. And to both of their credits, they both fought very clean. And, you know, that, that makes a lot of sense because even though they don't like each other, you're all kind of in this together in terms of you all, you know, the fighters want to put on a good show for the fans. They want to get paid. And, and it's not going to be in anyone's benefit if there's, you know, some illegal moves used or if someone gets injured before the fight or anything like that. That's not going to that's not going to be in anyone's benefit. Um, so that that definitely makes uh, a lot of sense. So the, the, the fight starts. And um, I, I'm just curious just to get your mindset as a referee. There's so much hype coming into this fight. 
do you have any um, preconceived thoughts about, hey, this is this guy's style, this is this other guy's style, this is stuff I'm going to look out for? I'm just curious, you know, as your preparation as a referee, especially when it's a rematch, do you look at the first fight just to, to take notes? What, what is your approach there? Absolutely. I do my homework, Karin. I want to see tendencies. I want to see if, there, if one guy holds too much or fouls in a certain way or does anything that's going to create a problem for me by fouling his opponent. Like, I'll give you a great example. Charlo, and I, I address this in the dressing room, Charlo likes to throw wide overhand rights. So the problem could be is if Harrison slightly turns his head and it ends up hitting behind the head, I've got to make an instantaneous decision. Was it Charlo's wide illegal punch or was did Harrison contribute by turning his head? And that has to be done instantaneously. So I was I had a heightened sense of awareness to this stuff. And I also just told Charlo on the, in the dressing room, when you throw in that punch, just make sure you hit him with the, the legal part of the, the hand to make sure it's not, you know, not with this stuff. It's with this stuff. And other things like that, with guys stepping on each other's feet and things like that, I was wanted to make sure we had a righty against the lefty. There would have been heads colliding, feet being, feet being stepped on. So I'm always studying to see the styles to give me an overall view or a general idea of what I have I'm going to be confronted with. No, and, and that makes a ton of sense um, that, that that you're kind of thinking ahead in that way and warning these guys about what could happen because we all know that these things um, definitely do happen. So in the in the first round, it's it's kind of an even fight, and, and Charlo did come out with those big looping hands. He came out very aggressive. Second round, uh, Harrison goes down. Now, my, when you're observing him go down, he popped right back up. What is that like for you? Because we've seen fighters, sometimes they pop right back up and they don't have their wits about them. Like, obviously, everyone remembers uh, Zab Judah versus Costa Zoo. When he went down, he got up went and he down couldn't again. stay up. Yeah. So wh what are you doing? Because you obviously want to get in there. You want to start your count, but you don't know if that guy might pop right back up and start kind of falling over. So what's your process there? Well, first of all, on any knockdown, as a referee, I have a mandatory eight count. So when he gets up, even if he gets up at two, I have to count to eight and then and assess him all along that process. So when he went down and popped up, a couple of things that are going through my mind anyway is it's early in the fight. He hasn't taken much damage. As Joe Cortez used to say, he's got a full tank of gas early in the fight. I'm definitely going to give him the benefit of the doubt unless he demonstrates to me that there's something that makes me worry about his ability to protect himself. Um, Harrison popped up. I gave him a quick look. He was talking to me. His body language was perfect. We're going on. We're moving on. And no, that that is definitely the right call there. He he looked totally fine in terms of he. It wasn't a flash knockdown. It was still it was still a good knockdown. But it was in in that same way he got right back up. Um, and I'm and I'm glad that and the his fight body language was steady on his feet, no problem. It wasn't like he got up right. and he was stiff like. You would say with Zab Judah. Yeah. He got back up and he, he was more annoyed than anything else that he got himself knocked down. And he was talking to me. You know, yep. I'm good. I'm fine. You know, whatever. <laughs> and it's always good to see the communication. You know, we can always hear you on the broadcast asking very clearly, are you okay? Seeing how the guy reacts. So the fight. Corin, can I just tell you one yeah, more thing? Yeah, please, please. At the, I want the fans to know this. Yeah. In the dressing room in my pre-fight instructions, I tell them, my job is not to assume you're okay. You have to prove to me you're okay. So if you're laying on the ropes and you're not doing anything, I'm going to be barking out some commands, follow my commands, so I know you're thinking. And when you get knocked down, when you get up, 
I'm going to say, are you okay? And you, I want you to physically say yes and also go like this. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say, do you want to continue? And you have to go, yes, because I want the doctors, the commission, and the fans to see you're communicating with me because I'm about to let you go on. If they stand there looking at me like this, they're telling me they, they're done. They're either doing it on purpose or they really are done. Right, right. They may not be able to answer you because they're hurt or they may inside want to quit without saying that. Um, and and that's that makes sense um, from your perspective. And I'm glad that you tell these people that beforehand so that everyone can be on the same page. So the fight continues. And, uh, you know, it, Harrison won the first fight, as we know, but it was controversial, you could say. It still felt like Charlo was the favorite, even though he wasn't the champion here. Uh, Harrison was doing his thing and, and the, the announcers were saying that they felt like he was winning a lot of rounds. I'm just curious when you're watching two guys like this, are you thinking in your head, this fighter's winning this fight, this other fighter's winning this fight, or are you just watching the action unfold and, and, and looking to when you have to kind of jump in there? You froze up, but I believe I know what you're asking. Sure. And I'm absolutely doing my very best to see who's winning I'm keeping two scales in my head. Sure. Who's hurt or not and fouls. And then the third scale is who I think is ahead or not. And for a couple of reasons, is it lopsided? Can this guy no longer win mathematically on the card? Which is what I had the other day with um, Gamboa. In my mind, he had lost every round. So on that knockdown, I didn't even think twice. It's over. It's, It's unnecessary to let him go on. But in this case, I was keeping score mental, uh, you know, mentally, and there, the scores, in my f- opinion, Harrison was either very close or winning that fight. So another thing I want to tell you that the California Athletic Commission is very progressive on is in the eighth and tenth round mm-hmm. of championship fights, we hand the scorecards in, go check the corners, and they hand, they're going to be handing us back the scores to let us know if it's lopsided or not. Because, again... It's one little tool that we have to pull a fighter out when he can no longer mathematically win the fight, doesn't have a puncher's chance, he's too strong for his own good, and his corner's too stupid to pull him out. So it's just one little extra thing that we have. It doesn't, it doesn't weigh 100% on what we do, but it's a good tool. So that, that's really interesting. I, I didn't know that. So in California, in the 8th and 10th round of championship fights, the referee knows who is winning and losing the fight. And I say that's interesting because, in theory, the judges, obviously they can keep a mental track, but they're scoring it round by round. So you're one of the few people as a referee who knows who is winning or losing the fight late in a fight, right, in a championship fight. We've just instituted this process. It's in the incipient stages. And what I believe, yes, they will be handing it to me for the, and the referees for the sole purpose of letting us know if it's a blowout or not, to say maybe this kid who's on the losing end of that blowout has had enough. Well, if, if it's even, yep. if it's close, I don't even think they're going to give it to us. They haven't decided yet. Gotcha. Well, if so, it's so if it, not giving not giving it to us says it's competitive. But if they hand it to us, they're trying to tell us, Jack, you might want to watch this guy. Well, if if I that have, helps, I got to uh, tell you some too. Yeah. I have conversations with the doctors every round. Right. Every round after I walk around, I do a flyby the corner. I go to the doctor. I give my opinion. The doctor gives their opinion. If I go like this and I go, Doc, he's fine. And the doctor goes, I'm worried about so-and-so. We're going to have a conversation because maybe I'm missing something. 
No, that's that's great that you are communicating. And I like the the adding the scorecards element, because if that helps fighter safety, which is something I've been talking about a lot, then I am definitely 100 percent for it. And I could see uh, why that would help fighter safety. And we'll get into the the Gamboa fight um, in a sec. But I wanted to talk about the the uh, the end of the Harrison fight. And before I get to the knockdowns, there was moments there, mid to late rounds, where Harrison started showboating a little bit. Now, uh, Charlo would land a two to three punch combination. Some punches would land, some wouldn't. And then Harrison would kind of showboat to say, I'm not hurt. I'm curious to, what are the rules with showboating? Is showboating allowed? Or, or as a referee, are you supposed to kind of tone down showboating? Because I remember a time, uh, one, one random example, I'm sure there are many, but, for example, Sergio Martinez was fighting, and he always fights with his hands down. And I think it was Arthur Mercanti Jr. at the time was the referee, and I remember him saying, stop showboating, don't showboat. But, in, in theory, is showboating against the rules? Is that something that a referee should step in and say, hey, don't do this? Well, unsportsmanlike conduct is against the rules. And I'm going to tell you something. It, this is where experience as a referee comes in. So, I'm not a fool if a guy showboats and the crowd's roar, roaring from it, why do I want to stop it if it's helping and enhancing boxing? Right. When it becomes excessive or puts the fighter in a dangerous position or deteriorates from the professionalism of the fight, I'm going to step in. It's excessive. But if a guy takes a couple of good shots and he showboats, my, you know what my thought is? Oh, that hurt him and he's trying to make like it didn't. Right. A lot of guys showboat because they are hurt and they did feel it, but they're trying to stall and let them make the other guy think that it didn't hurt. And I got to tell you, when Harrison was doing it, he wasn't throwing anything back. And I was wondering why he had kind of like taken off those middle rounds when he was doing a lot of that showboating and not really throwing anything back. I didn't know if he was out of gas. I didn't know if he was having a, a mental lapse. I didn't know what he was doing. But it wasn't deteriorating from the fight, so I let it go. And the other thing I didn't understand, Charlo landed those punches, and they they thumped him. A couple of those body shots thumped him, and then Harrison starts shaking his tail, you know? And I'm thinking, why didn't Charlo jump on him? Right. Why didn't Charlo just go charging in and jumping on him? Because it's a story. It's a scene. It's a play, right? I don't want to stop it. It's part of the play, unless it becomes excessive deteriorates from the professionalism or causes some kind of um, problem. Right. No, and that, that makes a lot of sense. A lot of fighters uh, start showboating to when they are hurt to make it seem like they're not hurt, to kind of sell it to the judges in that way. Um, and, and that makes sense. And uh, it definitely is part of the story. Current, and, and a lot of the current is, is far, is far, sorry, I interrupt you a lot. And I apologize no, no, please. Go ahead. Something across. Um, a lot of the referees don't understand it's it's a fight. It's not tennis. Right. You know, football players do the walk after they score a touchdown. Tennis right. players will will spin their uh, their their um, tennis racket. Or hockey players will will pump their arm and stuff like that. You gotta let that kind of stuff happen. It's it's part of the play as long as it don't become excessive, obsessive. And as re- a referee, if I can give one message to any young referees, it's not about you. It's let them do what they're gonna do if it doesn't interrupt fight no and and that is definitely uh, a part of the sport and then to your other point uh charlo didn't rush in they, they made that point on the broadcast many times maybe he was 
feeling like Harrison was playing possum or something, but he chose not to. But he was able to execute on his game plan in round 11. He drops Harrison, and Harrison looks a lot more hurt this first time, first knockdown in round 11 than he did back in the second round. So when he first went down in round 11, uh, what was going through your head? Was there any, any thoughts at that moment to stop it? I know that Harrison's the champion, and you've said before that you want to give the champion a chance to defend his belt. So what was going through your head in that first knockdown in round 11? Well, let me give you a general theory first. I stay, I try to get in the ring and stay out of the way and let them fight. But when a fighter gets knocked down, now I got to put him on a rope. And if he gets knocked down again, especially in the same round, I'm going to really tighten that rope. So that's exactly what I had. He got dropped. He got up. He demonstrated to me he can intelligently defend himself. And, uh, you know, I, I was sure of that, so I let him go. Then when he got dropped again... I, I wanted to see what I had, want to count out a champion, signaled down. He got up. He demonstrated to me verbally, but not so perfectly physically that he can continue. So I shortened my distance and stayed as close as I possibly could. And I evaluated what he was going to do after that second knockdown. And what he did after that second knockdown was basically um, – Move in a really unorthodox manner, right. not have any offense in mind, didn't run, didn't hold. And as soon as Charlo was comfortable and uh, got him against the ropes, he just covered up and laid back. That is not competitive. That is not intelligently defend himself. And that's why when he took four or five punches, they weren't hard. They didn't hurt him, but he wasn't. His reaction after the knockdown demonstrated to me he wasn't all there. And letting him go, to me, felt like it was unnecessary. There are people that said, and I respect their opinion, I should have stopped it after that second knockdown. Um, uh, but I'm the guy in the ring, just right. like when someone else is in the ring. I want the fight to go to a definitive ending without jeopardizing safety. So, that you know, to lessen the controversy, I also want to give a fighter his due chance. It's a world title bout. And, yes, he did not have a full gas tank anymore in the 11th, but – I felt he was really competitive. He might have been winning that fight. And to right. stop it too quick would have created worse controversy. So I gave him a little bit of a shorter rope, and then he didn't demonstrate to me that he was all there. So as soon as he started taking any shots, I stopped it. And no, and he was actually ahead on one of the scorecards. That's before, obviously, all the knockdowns in round 11. But so, and, and I definitely wanted to ask you about the end of the fight. But the second knockdown in round 11, and, and to your point, Whenever there's multiple knockdowns, there's going to be people with opinions who say, oh, you should have stopped it here or there or there. And it's it's very different for us watching at home versus being that person in that moment. And you have uh, fighters' careers at stake and their lives at stake, and you have to make a split-second decision. So when he went down that second time in round 11, um, you rushed in. Was there a chance in your head that you were going to stop it right then? Or were you? did you know that you were going to kind of evaluate and give him a chance to, to get back up that, that second knockdown in round 11? I, I went in anticipating that he when, when I was signaling down, he wasn't going to be getting up. So I was right. going to count him out. Or if he fell on his face from that fall, I was just going to wave it off. Right. But he surprised me and everybody yeah. else by getting up and recovering and stuff like that. And again... So I gave him an opportunity to prove that he can intelligently defend himself, and his body language did not demonstrate it from the second knockdown on. So as soon as 
you know, he was pinned and didn't really do much. Even though he didn't take heavy shots, it was unnecessary. And he, my right. opinion, he would have. No, and that that ma- that makes sense. You 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 gave him the chance to get up, and he did surprise I everyone. Gave, that's exactly right. I gave him every opportunity right. I could without letting him get hurt. So look, the people are going to criticize if I would have stopped it on the second right. knockdown, and people criticize. It just comes with the game. It's part of the game for me. It's it's part but of the you know territory. Current. No, it's funny. Here's how I'm going to answer it. Okay? Yeah. People are always criticizing what the referee does. Right. That refer if the promoters and the commissions are still hiring that referee, continue <laughs> right. to use them. Right. It says it all. No, it, it it says that you're you're doing something right, and uh, and and you that definitely comfortable with. did a great job on this particular fight and the next one that we'll talk about. And I I tweeted <laughs> about that and I said. Uh, Jack Reese uh, did a great job, and, and I told you that Thank you. afterwards. Um, it is it, he did. Harrison did surprise everyone when he got up, and you know who else he surprised? Charlo, because Charlo was on the uh, the uh, turnbuckle there in the corner celebrating. So you, so as you're counting Harrison, when did you first notice that Charlo had his back to you and he was celebrating? Um, and what is the protocol there for you as a referee? A really good question. So on on a normal knockdown. You signal down, you send the standing fighter to the, to the furthest corner or neutral corner, pick up the count from the timekeeper and count. And you, it was, the best thing you could do is keep both guys in your view. You should be able to see this guy through your peripheral vision as you're counting on this guy. But there's times when I don't really care about this guy right. because all I want to do is witness this guy's condition. And I've got to tell you, the first four or five seconds of a hard knockdown are the telltale sign of what the guy's condition is. So I don't even pick up. Sometimes I don't even pick up the count from the timekeeper. I'll do my own count because that's the official count anyway. So I can keep and maintain my vision and, and assess that guy's physical condition. This was one of those knockdowns. I, I jumped in and I think why Charlo got confused was because he was really aggressive on him on the ropes. And I jumped in and gave him a hip check to get him out of there. He thought I was stopping the fight. Right. But I really had it I really had to get him off of him. So it wasn't like I came in and just gently pushed him and sat down. I had to first get him off and then I went down. And I think when I pushed him off, he turned to his left and never saw me pointing down. He thought I was stopping the fight. Right. So he was doing what he was doing. And then when I went at when I said, hey, you okay? Walk this way, ready to go. And I had my hand like this. I turned to see where Charlo was. That was the first clue I got that he <laughs> thought it was over. And to be all honest with you, I don't know if you realize that an inspector thought yes. it was over and came in the ring too. Right. But we got that all straightened out and they went on. And Charlo told me candidly, he thought I'd let it go too long. I said, that's okay. You do your fight and I'll do my reffing. And right. if, if you're down, I'll give you the same opportunity. He started cracking up. Right. And and that makes sense that you keep your eye on the guy who's going down because that's crucial moments there. Uh, not the only for four his or five seconds. Yeah, that's crucial moments, not only for his health, uh, but also for if, if there is an opportunity for him to continue that you, you really need to focus on what's going on there. Um, and, and that makes a lot of sense. So Harrison got up. Uh, he's, he's running in an, like you said, in an unorthodox way, he's defending and he's not throwing at all. I didn't see one punch there. I saw him covering up. Um, exactly. And, he, and so you stop it and then Harrison, we can see it on the broadcast. He's saying, no, no. Right. What, what was he saying to you there? And how did you respond? He's saying, no, no, I can go or something like that. And I said, you're done. There's no way you watch the tape. 
and I just wanted to hold him by the ropes. And it was the heat of the battle for him. It was the heat of the moment. I understand it. And I, I, I really appreciate his professionalism because I guess his father and other people told him that, you know, he really didn't do anything, didn't respond. Because afterward he said, I got no problem with Jack Reese. He stopped it for my health and safety and blah, 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 blah. You know, so they get it. And the heat of battle is different than afterward when you think about it. No, when the adrenaline comes down a little bit and you have a moment to think, and I, I tweeted this, that I give Harrison a million percent credit because he was respectful in the post-fight uh, comments, and he said that it was the correct knockdown, he, the correct stoppage. He made no excuses at all, uh, and he, he agreed with, with your decision, as, as did I. And, I. and I put out actually a poll on Twitter. Um, 46% of people said they agreed with, with what you, your decision. Only 21% said it should have been sooner. 31% said it should have been later. Um, like we said, everyone's going to have an, have an opinion when there's multiple knockdowns, but bottom line, I think everyone realizes that it was a well ref fight and the right guy ended up winning, which is, which is the, the most important thing. And both fighters get to go home healthy. And that is, that is also, uh, just as important, if not more important there. You said two of the most important things that the right guy won and they both go home healthy. That's after that, there's nothing else that matters, but I want you to know it was, uh, the right guy won. Right. And like you said, they both got to go home. I gave them every opportunity, yep. every chance, and the fans got their money's worth without a big controversy of saying, you know, the referee screwed this up. But here's what's funny. In the same instance, I don't know, I don't remember what you said, 45, whatever percent said I did it right. Yeah, 46.9. And then 21% said I should have let it go longer. You can't have it both ways. Right. You know, so I look at the, the uneducated fan that doesn't realize he didn't. He got knocked down twice really hard. It's 11 rounds. The gas tank's a little bit empty. And after that second knockdown, he didn't do anything intelligent. He should have ran or held. You, not just kind of move it slowly like that and then lay on right. the ropes. And or we would have let it go. So the, the 46%, I give them kudos. They got it. They yeah. understood it. No, if if you're standing there and you're not throwing anything at all, that's that's a problem. And like you said, I think you said it was intelligently defending yourself, and that's I think that's the key word there. Um, so I wanted to also talk about Tank Davis versus Yuriorkas Gamboa. So you had this amazing fight of the year candidate, and then you're back out there now going to Atlanta this time. Um, what was you, you you spoke about the mindset in terms of the two guys not liking each other? Uh, in terms of Charlo Harrison, what was the prep, the the mindset for Tank Gamboa? These are smaller guys. Um, so what was the prep going into it? And also, does it make it easier for you when it's smaller guys? Is that easier to kind of get in there and, and move these guys or, you know, push one guy to the corner and things like that? Well, they're highly trained athletes and they're really strong and tough. Um, you know, it's it, it makes a difference on how I move them compared to heavyweights. Right. But these two guys were determined young little bucks. And uh, and I don't know if you saw Gamboa shoving my arm and right. Tank running behind me. They wanted at each other. But as far as the preparation goes, again, I did my homework. I had a righty against a lefty. I had a 25-year-old kid that's on the way up against a 38-year-old man that I'm not saying it was my thought, but possibly had seen his better days right. you know, earlier in his career. And his, a little bit of inactivity, a knockout, you know, before that, so my one of my concerns was, what does this guy got left to bring to the table? Right. So that was always my concern. But then at the weigh-in, don't know if you saw all that, what happened at the weigh-in, Tank, two things right. happened. 
the way it was supposed to be two o'clock. Davis didn't show up till four o'clock. He was two hours late, which, and I heard behind the scenes, he's overweight. He's trying to cut the weight. Someone, I don't know how true it is, said, they said he's five pounds overweight. And I went, five pounds overweight on the day of the fight. Wow. So he finally shows up. He's starving. He's kept the other guy waiting. And all these thousand people were there between the fans. It was free and all the people trying to facilitate the fight. And, you know, Jimmy Lennon, everybody. And he kept us all waiting. He gets on the scale. He's still 1.2 pounds overweight. And then they're doing the face-off. And he shoves Gamboa. Right. And a potential riot breaks out because we were in closed quarters. There was, wasn't a lot of punches being thrown, but there were some very big guys. And there, a lot of people rushed the stage. And um, I lost you for a second. A lot of piece of people rushed the stage and people were getting stepped on. People got knocked right. down or getting stepped on. I was trying to protect one of the female inspectors that were on the stage. We, Me and Clancy, Bill Clancy, put her behind us. And what we were doing was standing there. And when the crowd would get to us, we were just shoving them away from us to keep right. our little cubby hole. And it lasted a good two minutes. You know, the thing kept going. And what really was my concern was there was one Baltimore, I'm sorry, um, a Georgia police officer alone. And he had a gun. And I'm thinking if somebody grabs that guy's gun, <laughs> this could be ugly. And, um, you know, thank God it, cooler heads ruled and uh, cooler heads prevailed. And it didn't go that way. But the telltale part of it is. I'm saying, huh, Tank had to lose a lot of weight. He's grumpy. He's miserable. Right. And now this is what's going on. And I, then then he was 1.2 pounds overweight, and the commission was trying to sanction him, saying, we're not giving you the time to make the weight. This is a non-title fight. The sanctioning body allowed him an hour. He came back an hour later. He made the weight. So I'm saying to myself, he just lost like five pounds. Is he going to be empty in the fight? We're losing five pounds in three hours. So those are the things that went through my mind. And I'm guessing there was no uh, backup opponent uh, for this one then. Not that I know of. Yeah. There might have been. Maybe the promoter always does have something like that going on. Right. But I did not hear about it or see it in this particular thing. No. And, and the weight issues obviously can explain. Not that, you know, it was a competitive fight and I think everyone expected that. But some people did say that Tank took, you know, a long time to get this guy out of there. Um, so maybe maybe that helps explain it. So we get to the fight, and uh, Tank knocks down Gamboa in round two. And it got a little interesting because Gamboa gets to the corner, and now he's complaining about his shoe. And I don't know if if he was trying to say um, that he that's when he ruptured his Achilles, which is I, I believe is what happened eventually. I don't know if he's trying to say it's a wardrobe malfunction. And to make it even more confusing, they're speaking Spanish. Uh, and, and, and that makes it harder to understand what's going on. So take me through that series in round two and in the corner, what would happen there? Well, first of all, I got to thank you for giving me the opportunity to put this out there in public because the fans will really find this very interesting. Yeah. So I, I picked up the scorecards and as I handed it off to the, uh, uh, chief executive officer to tally up the scores, the inspector from Gamboa's corner, Tony said, Jack, Jack, he's complaining the sole of his shoe came off. That's exactly what he said to me. So I went in the corner and I said, which foot? And he pointed to the right. So I picked it up and I looked at it and the shoe was pristine. Right. There was nothing wrong with the shoe. So I said, there's nothing wrong with this shoe. And then they told, they were, and by the way, I speak a little Spanish. Plus there was a Spanish guy in the corner that was kind of interpreting. 
And they said, no, no, it's inside. It's inside. So my first thought was these some bitches, he just got knocked down really hard in the second round. They're stalling. They want to give him extra time. They want me to call for an equipment check, a change. They ain't, I ain't doing it. I said, this is, this, there's nothing wrong with this shoe. He's, let's go. So, and I want to make the fans understand this. If a glove tears, the glove is a safety issue that's provi- and that glove is provided by the commission or the promoter. We have to address it. We have to call time. We have to address it, change out the glove. But the equipment that the fighter brings in, just like a mouthpiece, if something's wrong with that equipment, it's on the onus of the fighter. So he's complaining about a shoe that we, the commission, me as a ref, I had nothing to do with it. He either can continue or he can't. That's my thing. But then not to be like a knucklehead and, and just disqualify people. Right. If there's a re, if I could see something visibly and we could fix it quickly, we'll do it. But the thing you got to look for as a referee, are they stalling for time or is it legitimate? Because if, one of the fighters has an advantage. I can't give him time out to take away that advantage away. So it's the onus is on the fighter. So they were complaining about that thing. And I said, no, he's got to go. And I, got, I said, everybody get out of the ring. Right. And we went with round three. Now, we, I believe this is how it happened. I don't remember exactly. Yeah. So then we come back in between three and four. And they're still complaining about the shoe when I went over to, to the corner. And I said, tape the foot. Tape it in a figure eight to tighten it up like a cast. I've done that before a million times with fighters when the ring was so wet that they were slipping. So I tell them, tape tape the shoe, but tape the tape upside down so the sticky part's facing out, and it'll grab the mat, and we finish the fight. So I told them, tape it. So at this juncture, they go to grab the tape, and there's like 10 seconds left. In the, in the one minute rest, I said, no, no, not now. Right. You get to do it next round in between. They were just trying to stall to give this guy a chance to recover and stuff like that. Next round, they tape it and, and we go. And he gets knocked down again in the eighth round. Really right. Hard. Yep. And, and by the way, his one of his corner men, not the chief second, mm-hmm. uh, came in the ring two or three times during the round while the chief second was in the ring, which I could have, I would never in a million years, but the rule says I could disqualify the fighter. If that happens, only one guy could be inside the ring, two on the apron and one on the ground. Two or three times the guy did it. I threw him out. I I went over to the, um, uh, after this next incident, I went over to the chief executive officer there. And I said, I want all of the cornermen fined because it was obvious to me. They were stolen after the eighth round knockdown. To buy him time, they dumped a shit ton of water and ice right. on him. That when he stood up, it came flying off his his trunks right. and, and ended on the mat. So I said, "The heck with it." I said, "Fight!" And I went over and I kicked the ice out of the ring and let, made them fight. And that's when I told them to to go after the rounds. Over, I told them to just, uh, to find the guy. And what happens? Because all that water, the next round, tank slips in that corner on the water. So these are games that that the cornermen play that I got to be aware of. And let, let me tell you, let me back up and say this. When he went down on the second round, not down, when he got up, it to me, it appeared he was favoring his right groin. He, he kind of touched it, and he was moving his leg in a fashion, because I've had groin injuries that I thought he hurt his groin. I even said to him, que paso? 
And he said, no, no, I'm okay, I'm okay. But that's what I thought was wrong, his groin. And even a little bit later in the fight, it looked like maybe he had a little problem with his groin. There was nowhere during that fight that anyone told me he hurt his Achilles tendon. And then the fight's over. I'm not at all saying, you know, he tore his Achilles. I don't know what to tell you. Because during the fight, all I kept hearing about was the shoe. So... Right. And then, so that's what I wanted to, to ask you. So first of all, on one thing you said, it is interesting that a glove is very different than a shoe because the glove goes through commissions. There's approvals uh, from both sides there on the glove. So that, that is a totally different thing. And it makes sense that if you saw something physically wrong with the shoe, you would have given him time. But since there wasn't, it was, you had to make a determination. So Here, now that I would have done, Karin, yeah, go ahead. I would have done. The heel was coming off. Yep. I would have physically took the tape and I would have either taped it myself or told those guys right then and there, tape it. Right. Different story. Something wrong with the short. Something wrong with a cup. We, if we could fix it quickly, we'll fix it. Right. I don't want to take away advantage, but if it's visibly in front of me, like a football player, you wouldn't let them go out with bad equipment. Right. But those guys could replace each other. We can't do that here. They can call timeout. We can't do that here. But if it was something like this, I, I I couldn't see it. I didn't believe it after that. Right. We we have to. He either can fight or he can't. Right. And now that now that the article has come out uh, that he did rupture his Achilles, that's what they're saying. Um, they're saying there may be surgery. Now that you know that, and you look back at the situation, do you think a that that there maybe was an equipment issue inside his foot? Do you think b he was stalling for time, or do you think? Maybe he ruptured his Achilles, hurt himself, and he didn't realize that he hurt himself and he thought it was a problem with the shoe. Like now that you know that information, how does that change, you know, your thoughts on what happened in, in those, you know, mid to those early to mid rounds? Listen, if he, if that guy ruptured his Achilles and he fought eight and a half, eight rounds more with that Achilles torn like that, I have nothing but the greatest admiration in the world for him. I just, I don't, I've never seen anybody that ruptured an Achilles be able to even stand, stand on it. So I'm not saying he didn't. I'm not a doctor. I don't have an x-ray machine. I'm going to let history straighten it out. This will come out, and I'm not going to comment on it. It's, I did what I thought was right at the time. All they told me was about equipment, and I didn't see any problem. And right. I'm the one who told them, take the goddamn shoe, make it like a cast so he could, so he could fight. Right. I was surprised that with all their experience of shenanigans, they didn't even, we weren't even smart enough to tape it on their own. I was shocked. Right. <laughs> well, at the, yeah, at the end of the day, you have to make that determination because exactly. corners are, will try to get any advantage that they can. And it's your job to decide if they're telling the truth or not. Um, and you made that determination there. So round eight, um, there was the knockdown. And, and I want to say something. Yeah, I'm not please. patting myself on the back. Yeah. Watch the video, watch the tape, or Tank was, now I didn't know this, but right. what Tank was saying, him in between two and three, and I very gently said, you have to fight, and we got a ten, and a half, 10 more rounds out of that thing of a great fight. Of a yes, fight. yes, we did. It was a so great, it was, yep, it was a great what fight, and with, with the wardrobe malfunction, with the kill, whatever it was, he was able to continue, and we got some great action. Um, and in round, I, what I'm saying is, yeah. I put I put it to him. I'm yep. sorry, you have to do this or this. Right, and that's it. Yeah, and he did. He, he chose to go on. Right, and I think uh, that was that was great for for us as fans, uh, for exactly. our enjoyment, for his stock, for for Tank, for everyone. So absolutely, round eight. Um, when when we had the the knockdown. Um, the, what I wanted to ask you is, Gamb uh Sorry, Tank. 
who knocked down Gamboa, was supposed to be in the neutral corner, and then he's kind of almost sprinting at Gamboa. And I think you had to push him back a little bit and say, hey, hold on. So what is what is the exact uh, rule there? Obviously, when there's a knockdown, you send the guy to the neutral corner. How long does he have to stay in that neutral corner? How far can he come out? Is it a few steps? What, and is he allowed to just sprint at a guy? What, just what, What's the rule in that situation? Uh, Tank made a emotional mistake that I know he knows better on. Absolutely knows right. better on. When a fighter is knocked down, the standing fighter goes to the depends on what state or where you work, the neutral corner or the furthest corner. Right. And stays in the corner till the referee says box. One of the reasons we, we try to keep our eye on both guys is so they don't come creeping out and jump on this guys before we even say box. So when I turned around after assessing Gamboa and he was right there, my duty, my responsibility is to put him back in the corner. So he wasted an opportunity that he really, when he really had Gamboa hurt, he didn't get to go with him because I had to put him back in the neutral corner and the clock ran down. And when you say there's certain places where it's the furthest corner, could a guy be sent back to his own corner if that's the furthest corner? Absolutely, because those because his coaches are on the on the floor. They're not on the canvas. And there's an inspector here with him, so there's not going to be any shenanigans. They're not going to be, you know, they can coach him. They can yell to him and stuff. But he can end up going back to his corner. In California, we want the guy to go to the furthest corner from where the guy's knocked down gotcha. to, to keep it straight. Other places do it like that. Some places do it the amateur way, the neutral corner. Problem with that is you can end up very close to the fighter that's down. Right. And that, that can happen. So in round 12, Gamboa goes down and in the broadcast, it was hard to see what you were saying or what it was a very tight shot on Gamboa. Um, we saw him go down and he kind of looked up and then the next thing we knew the fight was, was called off. Now Gamboa is someone that we know he goes down a lot and he gets up a lot actually. So I'm just curious, what was, uh, what was that like for you? What was your thought process? Take us through the end of the fight. That was a, an extremely easy decision for me to make because unlike the Harrison Charlo fight, I got to see the progression of damage in front of me. I didn't think um, uh, Gamboa had won a round. So now I have in my mind, I have a lopsided fight where there were periods of time where Gamboa took quite a bit of damage to the point where I brought the doctor in more than once to check on his condition. But he was very strong. He wanted to go. His corner wasn't stopping it. There wasn't an opportunity. And then the other thing where I thought there were opportunities where Tank, I believe, could have finished them, but maybe the weight loss came into play where he didn't have the gas and the gas tank to go and finish them earlier. But after that eighth and ninth round, which he took more, a lot of shots in that ninth round too, I was very hypersensitive that if there was any, um, time where he was going to be taking any punches that were head snapping or his hands dropped or uh, punches in bunches where he wasn't defending himself or hard knockdown, I was probably going to stop it. So when he went down in that 12th, he couldn't win mathematically on, in the scorecard. And, and he didn't have a puncher's chance that he demonstrated throughout the bout that he, he hit Tank with everything he had. And Tank just kind of fluffed it off. And my point was, why take necessary damage with done? He's 38 years old. He gave it his best shot. He lost every round and went down two or three times with done. 
And did his team or his camp or himself, he himself say anything to you about the stoppage? Were they happy with it? Were they not happy? Did they, did they communicate about that? Well, they'll never tell me they're happy with it, but they would, <laughs> there was not one negative word said for the stoppage. And so now you look back, uh, <laughs> two weeks, two big high profile main events. Uh, are you, are you happy that, you know, now you can take a break and that's not the intensity of a main event right now. You, you can at least have a nice New Year's here. <laughs> Absolutely. Again, Curran, I'm so blessed. I feel so lucky to finally, you know, for years and years and years, I tell everybody, you know, I've been doing this like 21 plus years. And I always say it took me 20 years to be an overnight success. Right. People are all of a sudden seeing me a lot, but they don't understand the bullfights the, the fights I've done in bull rings in Mexico and, yep. you know, worried about getting home because I didn't want the cartel to cut my kidneys <laughs> out and sell them and all the stuff that professional officials go through. Uh, I just feel so blessed to be doing fights on this level. And I'm going to always work my ass off to be the best I possibly could be. I'm not trying to be better than anybody else. Just if, if I if I could be the best I could be, it'll all work out. And And that was my final question to kind of wrap it up. You know, obviously we're getting to the end of the decade here, you've been refing for a long time. Um, just looking back at your, at your last decade, I mean, you, there's been a lot of high profile fights, um, and, and you've been involved in these big matchups. So how, you know, just, just a moment of reflection from you at, at everything that you've, uh, achieved in the last decade and, and, and how much longer do you want to continue doing what you're doing? High profile fights as we look forward into 2020 and beyond. Well, you know, uh, I'd love to do this forever, but the reality is father time is undefeated. Um, I missed a couple of months this year because I had some pretty big surgery. And so I, I was out for a few months and I'm very cognizant of my own physical being. I was a firefighter, a fireman for 31 years. Wow. And I knew when it was time to go there. And I believe in my heart of hearts, I'll know when it's time to go here. And I can absolutely promise you and everybody else. Um, if there's ever a question in my mind that I cannot protect those fighters, I'm done in a heartbeat. No questions asked. And, and if I'm, yep. and if I start making not one, you know, if one people make mistakes, but if I'm making repeated mistakes or my concentration isn't what it used to be, I'm done. I'm gone. And in 2020, do you want uh, more YouTubers or less YouTubers? <laughs> I want, I want all the eyes we possibly can get on boxing. I'd love to make the younger people fans, let them, uh, and, and let me tell you, it's so great with YouTube and, and podcasts and things like you're doing, yep. because now, in the past, maybe younger people w couldn't become fans because they didn't understand the sport. Now, it's so much easier to learn about the sport and watch a lot of boxing, because you can see it being streamed, you could have, yep. you could DVD it, you can, uh, you know what I mean, all the ways to see it, the zone, yep. ESPN+. Plus. So younger people can now be become more educated fans so much easier. So I think it's great. No, it it definitely is. It's it's the sport is more accessible than ever, and let's hope it keeps growing on different platforms. One thing I do different channels. Say, yeah, it's a totally different sport than it was in my father's era. You know, in our father's era, it's a hundred times harder being a referee and a judge now than it ever was. Because we are under so much more scrutiny. Current, when I was a kid, or when I was coming through boxing until the last 20 years, if I missed a fight, the only way I knew who won was if, if they put a blurb in the newspaper. Right. Now, 
before I step out of the ring, the fights are on YouTube. So the referees have their replays. The referees are under so much more scrutiny. And it's really weird about our sport. You know, people sit there and it's a, these two guys are trying to damage each other. And there's a knucklehead in the middle trying to make sure nobody gets hurt and nobody does anything unfair. And everyone sits there criticizing those <laughs> two warriors and criticizing those officials. It's like you try doing what they do or what we right. do. You know, I don't get it. Yeah. It's just the nature of the business. No, it, it used to be you had to see the blurb in the newspaper to see the results. Now there's a real-time poll on Twitter by guys like me <laughs> saying, what did you think of the stoppage in the fight? So it's a whole a whole different different world there. Different world. Um, Jack Reese, I want to I want to thank you so much uh, for the time for your great refereeing. I thought you did a tremendous job on these last uh, two fights, and and of course before that also, but specifically uh, in recent memory. And I can't wait to uh, see what you do in 2020. If I said this before last time we spoke, if there's a big fight and I see that Jack Reese is the referee, I feel confident that the right thing's going to happen, uh, that we're going to get our money's worth, and the fighters will be safe. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time. So we looked back at some of the biggest fights of 2019, or at least at the end of the year, two great fights. And now we're going to look ahead at one of the first cards of 2020, and that is on Friday, January 10th. And we have you covered here on everyone who is fighting on that card. So let's start off with Alicia Napoleon Espinoza. She is fighting on the card, and if she wins, that it will set up the mega fight with her and Clarissa Shields. Alicia, of course, a super middleweight champion clarissa is undisputed at 160 and this fight that uh, on january 10th she'll be fighting at 154 um so if if clarissa wins and if alicia wins that is going to set up that fight for april um so i talked to alicia napoleon about that and a, and a bunch of other things so here's my conversation with alicia napoleon espinoza I am Karen Batia speaking with Alicia Napoleon Espinoza. She's fighting on January 10th in Atlantic City. So, Alicia, we're going to talk about your fight. Uh, but first, I wanted to ask you, you go by The Empress. So how did you get the nickname The Empress? Well, because my name is actually Napoleon. So, you know, I was born with the name Napoleon. And in my amateur career, I was fighting for the NYAT belt as an amateur. And the ring announcer asked me what my name was, my ring name. And I said, you know what, I, I don't know. I don't really have one. And he looked at the paper and he goes, you're Napoleon. He goes, you're the, the Empress. Hello. And I was like, one of those moments where you're like, why didn't I think of that? So I kept it. It stuck. And I, I felt like it was a good fit. So that's the origin story, and you are fighting on January 10th, like we said. It's actually a unification bout in the super middleweight division, and I want to talk about your opponent. But in the main event is Clarissa Shields, um, and obviously a lot's been made of Clarissa Shields and what she's achieved in boxing. So what do you think about Clarissa Shields? Do you like her personally? Do you like her as a boxer? What are your thoughts? I do like Clarissa. You know, we've, we've met, um, we met recently and really got to like you know talk a little bit get to know each other and she's a cool girl i like her um boxing she comes off well boxing and, and media and what she's speaking and what she's presenting herself she's rough around the edges she doesn't always come off great she doesn't always represent herself well she has a lot more maturing to do i think um to smooth out some rough edges she has um i think she's a very talented fighter um 
you know she's she's fast and she's strong so you know she's great for the sport because she's a woman and women are rising so what i would like to see is is more women come up and if clarissa is bearing the weight she's not bearing it alone she's bearing it with me she's bearing it with my opponent that night she's bearing it with the other women that are able to be showcased on these platforms so you know it's great she's getting the attention but i just want to remind people it's not a one woman show it's women's boxing so it's not all about clarissa and they're going to get to see that on friday night and she is on the main event. You'll be on the undercard now. If you guys are both successful in your fights, is that the plan to get a super fight between you and Clarissa next? Yes, that's the plan. Showtime wants it. Uh, Clarissa's management wants it. My team is cool with it. We want it as well. We also want Fran Sean Cruz Desern because um, she's also the, the title holder in my weight class right now. So those two ladies are, you know, what we're looking at. And how do you think you would match up with Clarissa stylistically? Do you think you have a good style to take on Clarissa? I do because, you know, when she was fighting Hannah Gabriels, you know, Hannah's style, that boxy, bouncy style gave her a hard time. Unfortunately, Hannah gassed out and her conditioning probably wasn't where it needs to be for that fight. But I have a similar style, you know. I could bang in the middle, I could box, I could move. I have the ability to move and box and, and work angles. So I think it's going to be an excellent fight and a great stylistic matchup for the two of us that night. And currently, she is undisputed at middleweight. You are the super middleweight champion. So what weight would that fight be at you versus Shields? Um, I, it's probably going to end up going, um, to, to middleweight, you know, on her undisputed titles will probably be on the line. I'm assuming that that's what they're going to want. And I'm fine with that because the lighter, the better for me. You know, 168 is the heaviest I will go. Um, I never end up weighing 168 on the scale. You know, uh, as I've been in the sport for so many years, 16 years in total now, including my amateur days, I've been able to maintain, um, you know, between 154 and 160, no problem. Um, so I'd be glad to take that fight at middleweight if that's what they want. And that would be a massive fight. But before that, you have your fight and she has her fight against Ivana Hobbison. So I'm just curious, before we talk about your fight, have you been following the drama there between Shields and Hobbison and how Shields' brother knocked out uh, Hobbison's trainer? Have you been following that whole that whole drama? Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, I mean, I'm following it like I'm, I'm glued to the media screen every day. But of course, like we've all heard about it in the boxing world. And it was really unfortunate. It was unnecessary. It was something that should not have happened. And, um, you know, I think this fight is going to be a redemption fight for Havanison because, you know, it's like the girls were ready to fight. Then they had to postpone it. They had to wait. Everything's building up. Of her trainers hurt there's so much bad blood so it's going to be really interesting on friday night and i hope that after my fight is over and i'm done meeting with medicals and and everybody in the background that i can sit down and, and watch those two go at it because i think it's going to be a really amazing show but um you know that being said going back to how Clarice talk to her people. She's got to talk to her family. She's got to talk to her camp. You know, she wants, she, she has the ability to be such a great role model. And I think she's a nice person inside. I think there is some good in her, even though she doesn't always show it. Um, but those are the things that she needs to change and she really needs to stand up for. So she could be, 
a great role model to those young children looking up to her. We don't need to promote violence and, you know, her team beating up her team, her, her opponent's team. It's just, it's not a good look. And um, I hope that she, she learned and she, we're, we're going to see less of that in the future from her. And do you look forward to not the, only the opportunity to get in the ring with her, but also that opportunity for the, the mental discussion, like, you know, the, the press conferences and, and having those discussions and conversations. Are you also looking forward to that part of it with her, too? Yeah, definitely, because it's going to be something new. You know, I've never encountered um, bullying outside of the ring. You know, I've, I've always been uh, stood in front of opponents that have been respectful, that um, that have treated the sport like business. We shake hands. We go in there. We do what we got to do. I've never um, stood in front of somebody like Shields with her reputation of being a big mouth, being a bully, being nasty. And I'm not for it. And I got to thick skin so lay it on me mama like you know i'm not i'm not worried about it um i'm interested to see what she's gonna say and uh where it's gonna go but you know it's it's, it's gonna be a fun experience and it's it's gonna call for a good so i'm looking forward to it so that will be a great event. But before that, like we said, she has her fight with Hobbison. You have your fight with Ellen Sederus. She's undefeated. She's from Sweden. She's a champion. So what do you know about your opponent on January 10th? What, what can you tell us about the matchup? Um, I know, I know a little bit, not too much. You know, I never really get to study and, and, you know, watch the girls as much as I like to. I, the guys even for that matter, because my, my life is just insane and I work around the clock and I train around the clock. Um, but what I know about her is that she's definitely tall. She looks like she's about six foot tall. It wasn't on her box rec how tall she is, but in her photos, she towers over everybody. She was towering over Femke, which I fought. I beat Femke for the WBA, and I was shorter than Femke. So that'll be interesting. She's going to have reach. She's going to have height. She's a strong woman. You know, I seen her. I, I saw something. She plays soccer. She does a lot of cross training. She has a lot of strength and conditioning. She's got a great physique. You know, she's lean and mean. Um, she's a mother. So she's got a lot to fight for. She has children. She's got a family. Um, and she takes the sport seriously. She has an amateur background. She's not a pushover. So it's going to be a really great fight for me. She's a heavier body. She's a natural 68. So it'll be good if we're going to face Shields in the future because Shields is a naturally bigger girl than me too. Um, but, you know, that's all I really know about her. She's got an amateur type of style. You know, comes she has straight forward punches. Uh, she does move off her legs a bit. Um, she's got she's got some skill, so we're gonna see how it goes down on Friday. And but I'm confident. I'm in good spirits, and we train smart and hard for this fight. And if you are able to get the win against Elon Sederus, like we said, you'd be the unified champion. You'd have two belts there. So what would that mean for you uh, to have two belts in the weight class and be a unified champion? Oh man, it's gonna be a dream come true. It's something that we've been working towards. We wanted this moment for a while. We were trying to get it. Um, we were trying to fight for the WBO, but then um, Cruz Desern grabbed it. And um, you know, it's just something that we really wanted. The moment is finally here. We're ecstatic for it. I'm ecstatic for it. And um, yeah, I just I want to rack up those belts, grab those straps, put them over the shoulder, and and, and challenge whoever has the rest of them. 
and you're born and raised in Long Island. This fight is in Atlantic City. She's from Sweden. So safe to say that you're going to have the hometown advantage and your supporters are going to be there on, on uh, Friday night? Yeah, definitely. Um, maybe not all of my supporters, but I definitely have a, at least maybe 30 to 50 people or more rolling in that night. So that's good. It's so good to always have a crowd behind you. So yeah, I'll definitely be the hometown girl that night, even though I'm not in Long Island. I'm not in New York, but Jersey's right next door. And not to look too far ahead because the Shields clash when it happens will be huge. But what are your, your overall goals in the sport? Do you want to be a, a fully undisputed champion in a division? I know that you're, you're 33 years old. So what, what are your overall goals in the sport of boxing? Well, my overall goals are definitely to be a role model, you know, for young women, for children, for everybody, for people. You know, I, I really want to be able to spread love and light and faith and, and show what sacrifice and dedication and not quitting and not giving up means what it looks like, you know, because I'm no different than anybody else. We all are born with purpose and we all are born with dreams and those dreams start in our heart and we all feel it at the end of the day. So I really want to inspire people to move forward reach their dreams because sky is the limit it just takes a lot of work sometimes and that don't quit mentality um also for women in the sport you know i'm big on equality i'm big on you know women empowerment and that doesn't mean that I'm against the men in any way. I'm grateful for the men for what they did. I follow them. I study them in this sport. You know, I admire them. Um, but I, I really want to inspire the networks or the promoters or whoever is not with women yet to open those doors and make room for us. Treat us equally. Give us equal opportunity. Pay us equally. Put us on the platforms consistently. Don't make it a one-woman show. You know, make it about all of us. Um, and they, and let's, let's all be athletes at the end of the day. So, you know, I really want to fight for that change, you know, that pay gap to change, um, the opportunity for women to change, um, and to just be a light of love, hope, faith, and that doggy dog mentality of never quitting and, and reaching for your dreams in this life, no matter what it is. And you, you mentioned wanting to be a, a role model. How do you think um, we could, you know, g help get that pay gap uh, to, to get closer that, you know, it seems like in UFC, uh, the women's fighters, they're, they're kind of in the same level, but in boxing, that hasn't happened yet. And you talked about being a role model. So young girls, you know, maybe they want to, they're thinking about MMA versus boxing. H how do you think we can, we can make that happen and get more equality in boxing? It's just going to have to happen with the, the people that are in charge, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's a small world and there's a few bosses that are up there on top that have all the control, you know, it comes down to them, it comes down, it comes down to the networks, really, I feel that it's the networks that really need to open the doors and put more women on their platform and pay them what they're paying the men. You know, I don't want to hear the argument that women don't bring ratings. In time, you're going to see ratings grow and expand with consistently bringing women on board. If you only show us every once in a while and, and you, you know, you don't show us consistently, people are not going to gravitate towards us. If you show the public that we're here to exist and if the networks believe in us, naturally the fans are going to believe in us. You know, so it's, it's, it doesn't take that much knowledge to figure it out. It's do do what you're doing with the men. Promote the women the same way you're promoting the men. If you promote us the same way, you will be successful because at the end of the day, it's a sport. And those people, 
that might not like to see women get hit or see women bleed like that's a that's a small crowd and i guarantee you that they'll get adjusted and acclimated and they'll start to love to watch us so it just it just takes getting used to and it just takes them the the networks and the people in position of power to bite the bullet and commit a hundred percent back us up and compete when you go into an investment you don't go in 50 percent. you go in a hundred percent in hopes and you put all that work and effort behind your investment so it will be successful so that's what boxing needs to do for us Absolutely. It's about the exposure and having the same marketing efforts that they do for men, having the same content, the same pre-programming, because there are so many interesting stories in women's fighting, just like there are in men's. And hopefully that happens. I, I mentioned UFC. Um, you know, Heather Hardy is someone who went from boxing to MMA. Is that something that, that you would ever try, you know, dip your toe into the MMA world? I thought about it because growing up, I was in karate. I was um, I was on the wrestling team in high school. You know, I, I do have the background, but not consistently like boxing. Boxing is my bread and butter. I've been in it pretty much half my life. Um, I don't think so. I thought about it. I thought about trying it. I told Heather when she goes to the gym next time, let me know. I want to just work out with her, try it out. But that's a whole nother animal that I would have to learn all over again. Uh, you'll probably see me in a bare knuckle fight before you see me in an MMA fight. So. <laughs> <laughs> let's 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 see if that happens. And and just to wrap it up, are there any fights um, that you definitely want to want to have before you call it a career? I know you had the one loss to Tori Nelson. Do you want to get the redemption on that? Do you is there anything that, that you just say, hey, I have to do this before I before I call it quits? Yeah, I well, I've been calling Tori out for a while. You know, my team has been contacting her several times. We we've been desperately wanting to get that redemption fight since we lost that fight because we know that we could beat her. You know, she was a better woman that night. It is what it is. I was in her backyard. I was on her promotion. I was on her card. It went the distance. The judges gave it to her. All right, so be it. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it made me a better person, a better athlete because I worked harder and I changed things because I know that I can beat Tori. Um, so, yeah, that's that. we definitely want that redemption fight. We've been wanting it. I, I hope we see it. Last we contacted her, they said she's retiring, but then she's came out and fought probably three times since then um so we'll see but that is um something that we want and just to wrap it up you know it's obviously we're starting a new decade here in 2020 you started your career in the last decade in 2014 so in terms of turning pro so when you look back at the at the last decade and all you've achieved and now being on the doorstep of what could be a massive fight with clarissa shields which would get you to that next level of superstardom so do you look fondly at what you've achieved in, in the last decade when you reminisce oh my gosh yeah it's insane um because when you're in the moment you don't really realize how far you got because there's always more right we always want more we always want to achieve more but when you take the moment and you sit down and you reflect and you're like damn wow i I really did this i really I, i really did great things um but great things are addicting and that's why we don't always appreciate them when we constantly want to strive for more but yes when i take those moments i sit back i thank god and i say wow thank you jesus for what you brought me because he has brought me so far and i give to him i'm extremely grateful for what god has done in my life and how far he's brought me because 
You never really realize what you've done until you take that moment to sit back and, and notice your accomplishments and your achievements and the people around you that helped you get there. So, I mean, I'm still climbing that mountain. I'm still <laughs> climbing it, but I'm so grateful for what I have already accomplished in this sport and in this life. No, definitely. You have a lot to be uh, proud of, and uh, thank you so much for the time. I will definitely be looking forward to your fight. Alicia Napoleon Espinoza is fighting Ellen Sederus. It's a super middleweight unification on Friday, January 10th. It's in Atlantic City. It's on Showtime. And then, hopefully, later this year, we are going to see the big super fight between Alicia Napoleon Espinoza and Clarissa Shields. I'm excited for that. Alicia, thank you so much for the time, and best of luck to you this week. Thank you so much. That was Alicia Napoleon Espinoza, and Alicia Napoleon Espinoza is fighting Ellen Sederus. So who better to for us to speak with next than Alicia's opponent? Here is my conversation with Ellen Sederus from Sweden. I am Karen Batia. We're in Midtown Manhattan. We're at the Shields Habazin press conference. Now on the under undercard is Alicia Napoleon Espinoza, and she's taking Ellen Sederus. So. You are a champion in your division. You're undefeated, and this is your first time in America, right? Yes, this is my first time. Uh, yes, I have the IBF uh, title, world title. And so, what do you think of America? <laughs> so far, so good. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't had so much time to see. We arrived yesterday, and uh, today it's just in the car. So. And she's from Long Island. You're from Sweden, so she's going to obviously have the hometown advantage. Is that going to play play a factor on Friday night? Yes, and the boxing, it's a factor, yes. But I, I think yes, I'm going to convince, convince, no? We'll see. <laughs> You're going to convince the public about your ability? Yeah. Yes, of course. Um, yeah. And you said that you're away from your family now, um, but your husband will be joining you uh, later on. So is that is that tough to be kind of away from your family for this? No, they, they're used to it, and I'm used to it, so it's okay. It's just for, for a week. Uh, my kids are back home with my parents, and my husband is coming tomorrow, so it's okay. So you're taking on Alicia Napoleon. She's also a champion in this division. So have you been studying film on her? Have you been? What's the game plan against Alicia Napoleon Espinoza? Yeah, I've seen some film, some clips, uh, to see uh, her style. Um, but we're focused on my training, my style, what I'm gonna do. Um, and I'm, I'm bigger, stronger, I think, um, a lot, a lot taller. So. Um, uh, I can find my reach and, and boxing there. So you, th in the press conference, they're talking about the future matchup of Alicia Napoleon Espinosa versus Clarissa Shields. Do you take some pride in maybe playing spoiler to that and maybe stopping stopping those plans? She, she can uh, go fight against Clarissa after me. It doesn't matter if, on, on this fight. It, I hope Elise is focused on this fight and don't think about the next. But uh, if I, when I win, <laughs> she can uh, meet Clarissa. It's no, it's no big deal. And after the fight, what is what is your next step? Do you want a shot at Clarissa Shields? Do you want to stay at 168? What's the what's the plan for you? This is my my weight class 168. Um, I'm just focused on this. This. I don't want to talk. Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, I'm just focused on this. Just focused on Friday night. So Friday night. Um, and then we can talk about the future. But I'm not finished. No. For a long time. And last question. What do you want to say to all the fans in Sweden, all the people supporting you? 
Thank you so much for supporting me. Uh, I'm going to put on a great show on Friday night uh, and come home with two belts. Friday night, January 10th. It's on Showtime. Ellen Sederus is a champion. She's fighting Alicia Napoleon Espinoza. You don't want to miss that on Showtime from Atlantic City. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Ellen Sederus. So we're going to keep it going with this card. The main event of this card on uh, Friday, January 10th on Showtime is Clarissa Shields. And Clarissa Shields is fighting Ivana Habazin. Now, this fight was supposed to happen two times before this. The first time Clarissa pulled out uh, with injury. The second time there was a confrontation where one of the uh, members of the Shields camp uh, punched the older trainer of Ivana. Um, now we're going to get an update on Ivana's trainer when I, when I speak to her. Uh, and we're going to talk about her game plan. She said she's going to knock out Clarissa Shields. That's obviously going to be a tough task. So here is my conversation with Ivana Habazin. I am Karen Bhatti. I'm here with Ivana Habazin. We're in Midtown Manhattan at the Shields Habazin press conference. So this fight, you've been, this is your third training camp for this yeah. fight. So, so how are you feeling right now? Well, I feel great. I feel in great shape ever. Uh, it was the longest training camp, definitely. And I can't wait to come in the ring and win this fight. So you were up there and there was some words exchanged between you and Shields and you called her a bully. Why do you feel that, that she's a bully? You, you saw everything, so she's a bully. So in the last build-up to the fight, uh, her brother punched your trainer and he was in critical condition. So how is your trainer doing right now? Well, she's getting better. Uh, she's still not recovered 100%. She can work. I have a new trainer now, Steven Upshur. Um, James is waiting for one more surgery, so I don't know when she will be back to work. But uh, at the end, uh, it's all good, you know. I mean, it's not good, but nothing, nothing bad happened at the end. And is, is that going to be a disadvantage of you not to have your, your main trainer there with you on, on Friday? Well, you know, um, even my, my uh, coach, James Al-Bashir, knows Stevie long, long, long time and uh, they work together he has uh, full confidence in him uh, i have a really good connection with stevie too he had a big experience from the ring you know so uh, i think there is no disadvantage so we know the build-up this has been the third training camp in the press conference there was a lot of back and forth is it personal for you now does that give you even more motivation the, the, the fact that you guys traded the, the back and forth at the press conference well every fight is personal not personal you know this is just a business of course, uh, I am not like someone who who's gonna use a trash talk, but if you if you just if you use that if you start talking a shit, of course I will stand up for me, you know. So, <clears throat> on some nice, smart, and class way, what we can say that she has, so you know. So, she said she's gonna go for the knockout. You said you're gonna go for the knockout. So, what is what is your official prediction? How is the fight gonna end? Well. Maybe if that's going to happen, both start, the fight can finish very quick. So we're all going to see what's going to happen. So we have to tune in Friday, January 10th. Ivana Habazin is taking on Clarissa Shields. It's, it's finally here. Thank you so much for the time and good luck to you. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you so much. That was Ivana Habazin, and she has the tough task of taking on one of the greatest women's boxers of all time, and that is Clarissa Shields, the undisputed champion at 160. This fight, though, with Habazin will be at 154, so we'll see how the weight will uh, make a difference if it does. And that leads me to my last guest. He's also fighting on this card, 
and that is Jerron Ennis. He goes by Boots. And if you don't know his name yet, you will know it soon. He's only 22 years old. He's from Philadelphia. He's 24-0 with 22 knockouts, and he's looking to make a splash. I mentioned Clarissa Shields. She actually called him the next Roy Jones. So that's that's a, a big name to live up to. Uh, and I spoke to uh, Boots, and I, I'm going to get his perspective on fighting on this card and what he wants to do in the sport. So here is my conversation with Boots Ennis. I am Karen Botts here. We're in Midtown Manhattan. I'm here with Jerron Boots Ennis. He's fighting on Friday, January 10th on the undercard of Shields versus Habazin. So 24-0, 22 knockouts. So what are we going to do to keep that, that big knockout percentage going? Uh, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna put on the show, like, like always, me having fun. Me being sharp, smart, defense tight, and uh, uh, luring them in to the knockout. And you're from Philadelphia. This fight's in Atlantic City, so are a lot of your fans and supporters going to make the, the short trip over there to Atlantic City? Uh, yes, most definitely. Uh, I think it's going to be sold out, I think. I got a lot of people coming from Philly, so we're going, it's going to be a great, a great night. It's like a second home for me. And this fight is on Showtime, like we mentioned, Friday, January 10th. So are you looking to make a splash to a mainstream audience and kind of announce your presence here in the welterweight division? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm looking to make a statement on Friday night, another statement, and just let the world know who I am once again. And what are your, your overall goals and aspirations? Who are athletes that you look at? We know uh, in the past decades, Floyd and Manny did their thing in the welterweight division. Do you want to stay in, in welterweight, kind of follow those paths? What, what, what are your aspirations in the sport overall? Uh, I just want to uh, be the best, uh, boxer's hand, box, best boxer hands down and uh, unify my division and then move up and do the same thing at 154 and keep going on like that. And speaking of fighters who moved up in the ranks, Clarissa Shield compared you to Roy Jones Jr. Now that's that's a very nice comparison. So what did you think when she compared you to Roy Jones? Uh, I'm, I get that a lot. Everybody say that all the time. So I mean, it's a great thing because that's one of my, one of my favorite fighters. So uh, I appreciate it. So your opponent on Friday, he you said he's a little bit shorter, and that will make the knockout easier because he's going to come to you, he right? Come to me. Yeah, he got to come to me. So it's going to make it uh, a little easier. And if you had to give us a prediction, do you think it'll be early knockout late? What, what are you thinking? Um, I'm, we're gonna see. We're gonna see uh, when the fight start. Me uh, setting them up, my 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 big shots, and we're gonna see. We're gonna see. And if you look at the welterweight division right now, I mean, it's stacked. It, it has been for a long time, but it's specifically stacked now. We got Errol Spence, we got Terrence Crawford, Sean Porter, Pacquiao still doing his thing. Keith, there's so many, so many fighters. So, what would be your your dream matchup as, as uh, someone that you want to face in the in the near future? Uh, anybody that got a belt, uh, any any one of the four that got a belt. So that's that's the route we're going. And speaking of welterweights, have you been following the the Twitter beef between Crawford and Spence going back and forth? Do you, do you follow that at all? I've been hearing about it, but I haven't really been following it. Man. And it, between those two, uh, is there one opponent that you'd like to get, either of those guys? Uh, any, any, anyone, either one. It don't matter who, whoever it is. So Friday, January 10th, it's the coming out party. Boots, thank you so much for the time and best of luck to you. Thank you. And that will bring us to the end here. Thank you so much for listening. I want to thank all of my guests, Derek James, Jack Reese, Alicia Napoleon Espinoza, Ellen Sederus, Ivana Habazin, Boots Ennis. Thank you guys for coming on the show. Thank you everyone who listened. If you want to follow us, uh, you can follow at A-T-E underscore podcast. That's on Instagram and Twitter. If you want to follow my personal channels, it's at 
C-U-R-R-A-N-B-H-A-T-I-A on Instagram and Twitter. That's at Karan Bhatia at, on Instagram and Twitter. Please subscribe on YouTube, youtube.com backslash Karan Bhatia. Uh, please check out uh, our show on iTunes. Hit subscribe. Give us a five-star review. If you want to email the show, it's asktheexpertspod at gmail.com. Thank you so much. One more time. Enjoy the boxing uh, this weekend, and I will be back soon with another episode. This is Karan Bhatia signing off for Ask the Experts. Thank you for listening to Ask the Experts with Karan Bhatia.